Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, today we're going to talk about one of my pet subjects. Is it ballet? It is. Um, I know this because I I see what we're talking about. You have all the notes. We've discussed it already. I do. Well, we've had a lot of people who have asked us to talk about some various aspects of dance. We've gotten really a lot of dance requests. Yeah. So I'm excited. And I studied dance many, many years ago, and I love it still. And my my dance study was never as dance formal as yours was. Oh, yeah. Because you you really studied dance, and I I studied dance in the context of drum corps. Yeah, no, I was in a dance program in college, uh, and prior to that, I had studied uh, fairly seriously ballet for a while. Uh, There was a time in my life where I thought I was going to pursue ballet as a career, and then I went through puberty, and it kind of messed that up because it turned out my body type was really not going to work. No. And that's evolved a little since. There's a little more... um, room for variance in body type than there certainly was when I was coming up. But even so, once you kind of get a, a, a bust line and hips, it's turns get tricky, everything kind of changes. So. Well, and, and the story we're going to talk about today kind of is, it has a little bit of that to it, because we're talking about compensations for a body. Yeah, and we're going to talk about, uh, very famous to anybody who knows anything about dance, Marie Taglioni, who was a very famous dancer. Uh, she's really considered the ballerina of the Romantic era. And she's often credited with revolutionizing ballet, restyling it, redefining dance. But her father was really a pretty significant part of all of those achievements. Uh, and she came from a ballet family. So I mentioned her father, but also her grandfather, Carlo Taglioni, was a theatrical dancer and a choreographer. Her uncle, Salvatore, was a prominent dancer. Her mother was a Swedish ballerina named Hedvig Sophie Karsten, although she did not go by Hedvig. Uh, but her father, Filippo Taglioni, was really the biggest influence on her life and her career. And Filippo was a dancer and a choreographer. He was very successful. And he's uh, credited with much of the development of what we now refer to as the Romantic romantic ballet style. So Marie had dance in her blood, like genetically she should have been primed, but it didn't really play out that way initially. No. In 1803, Filippo took a job as principal dancer and ballet master in Stockholm, Sweden, and that's where he met and married Sophie Karsten, which is the name, she used her middle name uh, instead of her first name, which was Hedvig. They started a family right away. Marie was born on April 23rd, 1804 in Stockholm. Her brother, Paul, was born four years later, and Filippo accepted a post in Vienna when Marie was still an infant. And Filippo did some training with his children when they were very young, but uh, when they were school age, he moved them to Paris to pursue additional dance training. But despite being the daughter of two accomplished dancers and having a pedigree that goes, went back even further than that, Marie really did not impress the ballet masters in the French capital. According to Paris opera director Louis Veron's memoir, Jean-Francois Coulon, who was the Parisian teacher who had trained Filippo, once famously said this about Marie. When will that little hunchback ever learn to dance? Yeah, I, I think he said it more forcefully and loudly, probably. He sounded like he was really not one to hold back. Well, and I don't want to call young girls <laughs> hunchbacks. I think that's terrible. So, Yeah, it's a, it's a brutal... That's a brutal world to grow up in sometimes. Well, and especially when you're you're trying to do something that is difficult and requires skill. 
Yeah, we uh, we don't know a lot about like sort of her mindset at the time, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to be the daughter of two f- well-known dancers put in a, a you know pretty important ballet school and struggling. Yeah, that's not talked about very much, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, but despite. Coulon's comment, when Marie debuted in Vienna two years later in 1822, she was received to generally positive reviews. So something interesting happened in between. Yeah, I kind (laughs) of love this story, too. It's a little wild to think about. So while Marie and her brother Paul were training with Coulon in Paris, they lived with their mother, and Filippo worked in various cities and toured around Europe. So throughout this time... Their mom sent him letters telling him how well they were all doing, which was kind of an embellishment because Marie was not actually doing very well. She was a teenager at that point, and and she she was not an she awesome was, dancer. She was struggling. Paul did okay, yeah, but um, yeah, Marie really was not doing great. I mean, she was being called a hunchback by her teachers. Yeah, but but you know, mom was telling dad that it was all great. <laughs> And Filippo was so delighted to hear about how well the children were progressing that in 1821, he arranged for Marie's stage debut, uh, which was going to be a little bit more than a year later because he wanted to have time to make preparations. And this uh, announcement of his really set off a flurry of panic. Yes. Because the jig was up at that point. Once Sophie learned of Filippo's planned public turnout for their daughter, she talked to Colon for advice. And allegedly, his reply was, you wish for my advice? You have it, madame. You should make your daughter an embroideress, for she will never be a dancer. And she really did like embroidery. Yeah, it turns out there's a a, a great site we'll link to in the show notes that has a... a kind of an archive of various things of Marie Taglioni's. And one of them is like a scarf she knitted for a friend. And she apparently really enjoyed needlework her entire life. But she did not become an embroideress. No. Uh, So when Filippo sent for Maria to come to him in Vienna so he could, um, you know, assess her dancing and make preparations for her debut, she was a little dismayed with what he saw. He then realized how completely inaccurate the accounts he had been getting about Marie's progress were. But he did not cancel the debut. Instead, he just decided that she was going to have to work constantly on her strength, on her technique, and that he would be her sole teacher during this time. And it sounds like he ran her through a rather grueling training program and also sort of a grueling lifestyle. Yeah, he kept her completely out of the public eye. Um, He allegedly kept her dancing for six hours or more every day, always working to correct these weaknesses and to uh, uh, kind of compensate for this unique body type that she had. There have been a lot of speculations about exactly what was going on, whether her back was deformed by a hunch or a curved spine. He insisted that she embody lightness and be ethereal while dancing, and his goal was to never hear her dancing. So... This plain girl with a round back and like kind of gangly limbs had to really work diligently to meet these goals that her, her father had set up for her. And allegedly, the six hours of training were broken into three blocks of two hours. The first block was all about muscular exercises and strengthening the foot. The second was for practicing adagio exercises and balance work on one foot at a time. And then the third block was for practicing jumps. And Marie did eventually become quite famous for her jumps. So that third block was uh, really paid off in the long run. Although really, you could say all of it did. 
When Marie took the stage for her debut in a piece called La Reception d'une jeune nymphe à la cour de Terpsichore, which is reception of a young nymph in the court of Terpsichore, uh, in June of 1822, the reviews were actually good. Uh, not sensational, but even so, the successful performance really launched her career. And, you know, they had dodged the bullet of embarrassment, and she began performing regularly on stages throughout France, Italy, Austria, and other places throughout Europe. At this time, the epitome of balladic achievement and the goal that Filippo always had for his daughter was appearing at the Paris Opera. And despite the fact that Marie's popularity as a performer was growing all over Europe, she was still seen by the gatekeepers of the Paris stage as unattractive and unappealing. So as reviews of her appearances grew more and more glowing, public demand for a Paris appearance started to grow as well. Finally, five years after she debuted in Vienna, on July 24th, 1827, she ascended to that highest of heights and appeared for the first time at the Paris Opera in a version of the opera Le Sicilien. Her contract with the Paris Opera included a provision that she would only dance her father's choreography. And something sort of interesting happened uh, among Parisian reviewers when she started dancing there. They often spoke of her dancing as being effortless, even to the point of being artless. Uh, the perception was that her dancing just sprang from nature rather than training. But of course, of course, nothing was further from the truth. She had been, you know, working all of those hours with her father, and they had effectively created this illusion that she had a natural talent rather than this skill that was born of just this ceaseless dedication and constant training. Just kind of interesting. I mean, you always hear about in any sort of artistic endeavor that you want it to look effortless, but they kind of, um, they almost did it so well that no one really gave her credit for how hard she worked. Right. The composer, Berlioz, described Marie like this. Mademoiselle Taglioni is not a dancer. She's an air spirit, aerial personified, daughter of the heavens. Which is interesting when you think about the early... Coulon commentary about how she was kind of a clunky hunchback. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Uh, And for the next 10 years after her Parisian debut, Marie stayed at the Paris Opera. She really gathered a very devoted following. She was, you know, basically a rock star in the world of ballet. Always with her father as her teacher. Uh, and in 1830, so a few years after she had debuted in Paris, she signed a new, really lucrative contract with the Paris Opera. And included in that contract is the same provision that she would only dance solos choreographed by Filippo and that he was to be engaged as the ballet master there. And one thing that doesn't really get questioned or come up a lot that I think is just worth mentioning is that we really don't have a good sense of that father-daughter relationship. Some people have kind of asserted that he may have been manipulating her into, you know, these contracts that really benefited him. But he really did also make her a star. So it's a little unclear if their relationship had any animosity or weirdness or if they were just in it together and, you know, pursuing this career as a pair. Well, and I kind of wonder, uh, given that he was dedicating so much effort to making making choreography that that worked with her body. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder whether she would have had the same success with a choreography or choreographer who did not have that as his objective. I think she would not. Yeah. Uh, I can't know for sure, but that's speculation. Yeah. On our part. Yeah. On March 12th, 1832, her father's ballet, La Sylphide, debuted at the Paris Opera with Marie starring. 
The ballet was choreographed to show off Marie's talents to the best effect, and it's often cited as the moment that truly ushered in the romantic era of ballet. This rounded oval framing created by the port de bras, which is the carriage of her arms, uh, that Marie popularized was really, uh, dance historians believe, created by her father, as we were talking about before, to compensate for her oddly shaped back. Yeah, uh, allegedly if she just stood kind of in a neutral pose, her oddly shaped back that hunched a bit became obvious. But if she was forced to lift her arms over her head and in the oval position, it kind of lifted her breastbone up and it compensated for that. So it wasn't as obvious that she had kind of uh, awkward posture. But even the costume that Marie wore is the sylph, which was a fitted bodice with a floaty tulle skirt that um, cut between the knee and the ankle. Uh, and was designed by Eugene Lamy, really became a ball- an iconic ballet image. The long floaty skirt is still seen in ballet today, and it's actually called a romantic tutu. La Sylphide is also often cited as the first ballet which featured Marie dancing on point. This is something that happens all over the place in ballet now. If you go see the ballet, you will see dancers on point. It's uh, much more rare to see a ballet choreographed that does not involve point work. Right. Uh, this was not the case at the time. There are engravings and lithographs of her on point that predate this ballet, but only by a few months. Um, we've seen several that are dated 1831, so it's possible that those were promotional, even though um, some feature her in a costume from a previous ballet. Yeah, we do know a lot of the foot-strengthening work she was doing in those big six-hour blocks was probably, um, you know, leading up to this, that Filippo had this vision quite a while before they actually are credited with premiering it. In this version of Dancing on Toe, uh, if you go to the ballet today, it's very different from what you would see now to what Marie was doing. It was much more delicate and restrained than modern point technique, uh, largely due to the fact that at that time the shoes had no blocking. If you look at point shoes now, they're very hard at the front. Uh, there's a lot of resin and they, you know, are, are a pretty firm shape. They eventually get broken down and molded to the dancer's foot and every dancer has a different kind of way they like them done. But, uh, these were completely soft, like, just like a, a regular soft ballet shoe that a child would wear, you know, when they're learning nowadays. And it had a little bit of darning at the toe to add a slight stiffness, but again, created just with thread. There was no resin involved. So the toes and the ankles and the feet of the dancer had to be extremely strong to rise up on point at that point. Yeah, and there wasn't a lot of time spent on point. It was used more as a change of levels to create this illusion of floating and gliding over the stage. And it's worth noting that there were other dancers experimenting with point work. Uh, Taglioni got the most publicity because of the prominence of her position with the Paris Opera. And even though she's generally credited, if you look at any like quick history of ballet, it'll always give her credit for being the first to appear on point. But there were other dancers kind of playing with this concept. The popularity of the costume design and the dance technique, uh, repeated in other ballets of the time, ushered in an era where dancers were seen as ethereal, idealized, and almost otherworldly creatures, which I think has really continued until today. Yeah, the other uh, big popular ballet, other than La Selfide, that was came a little bit later, was um, Giselle, which is, again, per formed frequently nowadays it's very popular and it too features like this woodland creature kind of story and you know this mystical almost fairy like thing and uh, generally costumed exactly the same fitted bodice floaty tulle skirt so it really the romantic era really was about these kind of white dresses floaty 
otherworldly creatures. And through her younger years, Marie was seen as very chaste. She was undistracted by love. She was the epitome of purity. And some of that characterization was really fueled by these long white dance costumes that she became known for, as well as her dedication to her career, and probably the fact that her father tended to keep her away from other people. Uh, you know, focused on dance, no time for boys. Yeah. Twelve years into a- her career, though, she gave up single life. And she married Gilbert Comte de Voisin in London in 1834. They had a child together in 1835, but their marriage didn't last. They were separated in 1835, but they didn't divorce until 1844. There was another child in 1843, which did get his last name. It's pretty likely that it was not from the marriage. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things that was never particularly clear. Interestingly enough, um, the rumor is that both times that Marie was pregnant, she actually reportedly had a knee injury and so stepped away from the stage for that reason. But then, of course, they just kind of kept her her <laughs> private life her, uh, didn't even exist. It was really all about the image and this ballerina. Yeah, was, I feel like that's like the, the 80s sitcoms where who, whatever actor was pregnant would have uh, like a, a dust duster in front of them or like yeah. carrying something so you can yeah. see. Uh, in 1837, Marie and her father accepted contracts with the Russian Imperial Theater in St. Petersburg and preceding her arrival, a pamphlet that was titled The Biography of Marie Taglioni was circulated in the city and by the time she reached St. Petersburg there was like this complete complete hubbub of excitement about her. Uh, her first appearance at the Bolshoi Theater was sold out, and she enjoyed an extremely successful several years of dancing there. Uh, she last performed in Russia in 1842. And then there's a wacky story about that. So gross. <laughs> there's this apocryphal story. Uh, it's a supper that happened after her last Russian performance, at which a pair of her shoes purchased for 200 rubles were cooked and eaten with a sauce by a group of her most devoted fans, which is simultaneously disgusting and probably not true. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's entirely, I have a suspicion, again, this is all speculation, that possibly it, it, her shoes would have been purchased, uh, you know, almost as a, like, collector's item. Souvenir. Yeah. And then I think the dinner thing, I don't know where it would have sprung from, but that seems extreme and bizarre. And again, gross. Having danced a lot, I know how disgusting dance shoes get. It's kind of like if you would eat a hockey glove. I mean, it's a similar level of grossness. (laughs) It does not sound palatable or delightful in any way. No. (laughs) After her time in St. Petersburg, she continued to tour Europe, and she performed for several more years. But finally, in 1848, Taglioni retired from dance after 26 years on stage. The life of a professional dancer, which was always on the road, it was exhausting training. It was really starting to catch up to her because she was in her mid-40s at that point. She was was not a spring chicken anymore. No, and her retirement was kind of cut short by mismanagement of her finances. So in 1859, she went back to Paris to the opera, this time as the Inspectrice de la Danse. Uh, while she was holding this position, she instituted the company's exam system, and while teaching there, she met her, her protege, Emma Livry. And Marie actually choreographed uh, only one ballet in her life, and that was in 1860, and it was for Livry, and it was entitled Le Papillon, which means the butterfly. 
And the story involves a woman who is changed into a butterfly and then flies too close to a flame and burns its wings. And this uh, sadly turned out to be somewhat prophetic. Well, she would likely have gone on to a great career by virtue of Taglioni's blessing and teaching. Livri's life ended tragically in 1862 or possibly 1863. You see it different, differently in different sources. Um, she brushed against a gaslight while rehearsing for an upcoming production, and her tutu caught fire, and she died from her burns. Yeah, so only a couple years after her, her ballet by Taglioni. So she really died very young and quite tragically. Uh, but after 1870, Taglioni's next career move was in a completely different avenue of dance. So she had been at the Paris Opera for a while, but she then moved to London and taught ballroom dance, uh, which she did for t- about 10 years. And interestingly enough, Filippo Taglioni, her father, died in 1871. So around this time, it was like all of her ties to ballet really ended. And whether that was coincidental or not... Uh, or if she just decided that as her father was reaching the end of his life, she was just going to be done with ballet and decided to pursue ballroom. Some reports say that ballroom was just a more lucrative option. I can imagine that. <laughs> uh, and she did continue to have some money struggles. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of that's the end of ballet for her. Yeah. In 1880, she moved to Marseille with her son, and she died four years later on April 24th, 1884. Now, initially, Marie was buried in Marseille, but she was later moved to Gilbert de Voisin's family plot in Père Lachaise in Paris. However, there has actually been a good bit of confusion through the years about her resting place. Um, I imagine some of our uh, traveled listeners that have been to Paris and been to Montmartre have possibly seen what many believed for a long time to be her grave. But it is not. It is, in fact, the grave of Marie's mother, Sophie, who died in 1865. And it's there in the famous Montmartre. And it is marked in a way that caused some confusion. It's marked Marie Taglioni à sa mère bien-aimée. And it really means Marie Taglioni to her beloved mother. And I presume that because Marie was a star, her name appeared on this placard rather than her mother's name. But it's always been a little unclear. Uh, but unfortunately, that has led to Sophie's grave being mistaken as Marie's. And so if you look up pictures of it online, it's usually just covered in dancers' shoes that go to kind of pay... Uh, homage and, you know, pay their respects to this famous ballerina. And they're in various stages of decay. A lot of them are blackened from having sat out there for so long. But it's not at the right site, unfortunately. And if you go to Marie's actual grave, they're like two pair. Yeah. People haven't... The people who did their research. Yeah, there there's been some... Um, work done in the last five or so years on the part of dance historians to try to get that corrected, like on maps of the city. And uh, I think there is even a placard at the front of Montmartre that might be incorrect now mm-hmm. that was put up later. Um, and I'm not sure what the status of it is as of now when we're recording, which is 2013. But I was looking at tourism brochures from last year, from 2012, that even still said she was in Montmartre. So there's some confusion still being... Um, populated out there in the world. Right. When in fact it's not accurate. All of Filippo's choreography is lost to us, unfortunately. We do have notation of a recreation by Auguste Bournonville for the Royal Theater of Copenhagen in 1836, after he had seen Taglioni in the role. There's also a speculative reconstruction by a choreographer named Pierre Lecotte in 
1972. Yeah, but we just don't have the notations. A lot of other ballets from history were notated so well, but even when you see them performed in the modern era, it's basically the same steps being done. But we really don't have any of Filippo's, unfortunately. Uh, but Marie's impact and consequently Filippo's on the dance world is still certainly felt today. Whereas she was, you know, one of only a few dancers at the time to go on point. Now it's really de rigueur for any serious dancer. I mean, you couldn't have a career in ballet and not dance on point. Yeah, I cannot think of a ballet I have seen <laughs> that has not included point work. Yeah, some of the more modern ones that kind of uh, bridge the gap between ballet and modern yeah. will not always go on point. But for the most part, uh, you're looking at point work, which is its own whole thing. Yeah. I remember I talked briefly to my sports podiatrist about it, and he kind of made this face like, I don't want to get into this. Well, and <laughs> when I was young, uh, I really, really wanted to take ballet. And I had a, a childhood friend who uh, was a dancer, and she was very gifted. And my dad educated me on the, the trials of ballet dancing on your feet. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was actually trying to talk me out of it. I think he was trying to help me understand what I was wanting to get into. Yeah. Uh, I did not pursue it. And that turns out to probably be pretty good because I am so tall that uh, I, yeah. I was taller than most of the male oh, dancers. You had lovely area. lines, though. Yeah. Yeah. I was also extremely inflexible. That's would, a problem. That would have been a <laughs> lifelong difficult struggle. I will say once I quit dancing, uh-huh. uh, probably about four years after I quit dancing on point, my feet suddenly grew a whole bunch. Ah. Like all of the impacting that had been done since I was, you know, 11 or 12 up into my early 20s. Uh-huh. Once that stopped and my foot spread out, I went from like a size five to now I wear an eight and a half. Wow. I mean, that didn't happen overnight. That happened no. over several years. But my feet did go through a growth spurt after I stopped doing uh, point work. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. I have kind of a grab bag today. I have a few brief ones uh, because I feel bad. We tend to pick really meaty ones usually to read, but we often get really short but very fun ones. So I have three of those. Uh, the first is from our listener, Randall, and he it's about the Antikythera podcast. He says, I just listened to the Antikythera podcast while cooking dinner. There was a quote by someone about how there were no false starts or mistakes in it. I make and repair clocks and love to read about clockmakers. I read a book about John Harrison's first marine clock that was by Rupert Gold, and he restored it and talks about all of the odd gears and parts that do nothing that Harrison just left as he was trying to figure out the mechanism. So I have to agree, this cannot have been a one-off. Somewhere there was a shop full of mistakes and oops, kind of like my shop. Uh, it's very cool. So it's good to have a clockmaker back us up. Yeah. And I mean, it, the quote came from a, a person of knowledge, but it's always nice to get a second and third opinion. Uh, the next one is an email from our listener, Terry, after listening to our uh, Flynn and Isles Lighthouse podcast. And she says, I'm writing because I wanted to tell you about my husband's job. For context in that podcast, Tracy mentioned that it sounded like a grand job to be able to hang out so low in a lighthouse for mm-hmm. weeks on end. Uh, but Terry's husband, she says, works for a railroad and his job is a bridge tender. He mans the bridge either 48 or 72 hours at a stretch. He lifts the bridge for boat traffic when they can't fit under the bridge. Currently, he has a 20-foot clearance, which most pleasure craft can get under. Thanks to modern technology, he has a computer, television, and other distractions to keep him busy on his two- to three-day shift. My son is also a bridge tender on the same bridge. It's not as exciting as the idea of tending a lighthouse, but it's a great job nonetheless. 
I don't know that it's not as exciting as sending a lighthouse. It could be pretty neat. I kind of like maritime stuff in general. That sounds pretty fun. Uh, And our third one is actually from Facebook, and it's from our listener, Anthony. And he says, I love the Oyster Wars podcast. I work in the oyster biz on the other coast. And it really brought home how oyster farming worked before farming. Uh, Now we grow in bags from seed that we grow, and it keeps disease down and natural beds intact. Quality and ease of production is up, not to mention accountability. For the recipe book, he suggests deep-fried oysters with rice flour instead of wheat flour for a crispy, light oyster and a bit of paprika and chili powder to add a nice flavor. That sounds delicious. I know. That was a brand new email. We just got that this morning. (laughs) I love a fried oyster. Oh, yum. Well, and I, yeah, we didn't talk at all about how farming of oysters has progressed since the time of the Oyster War. So I was super glad to get that one. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, it's always really cool to get um, notes from people. I didn't even realize I was theming this of people that work in the professions we were talking about in this podcast. Yeah. I put a theme group together without realizing it. Uh, If you would like to write to us, if you are a ballerina or uh, a member of the core, because, you know, ballerinas are the stars. Not mm-hmm. everyone who dances ballet is ballerina. I did not know this. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It really makes um, dancers angry when people say, oh, this is my friend so-and-so. She's a ballerina. It's, off- it's kind of like when people say that people that work in a library are librarians when they're not all because they're not. Uh, they don't always have the the library science degree. It's the same thing, basically. Cool. Like only like really the stars, the high level. It's like a uh, a place of prominence. So yes, if you are a ballerina or a dancer of any level, feel free to write us about this one. Or if you're a costumer, you want oh, to talk yes. about ballet costumes. I've made some ballet costumes. Yeah, that's where I've learned some good costuming tricks for the through the years is helping out with ballet companies. I have some really good tricks. Um, but you can write to us at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History. You can visit us on Facebook.com slash history class stuff at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Pinterest. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the word ballet in the search bar and you will get a number of articles, one of which I really love called the 10 most important ballet terms. And you can learn about ballet or almost anything else you have an interest in at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.